Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me, and I'm coming to you earlier than usual this week because, well, you know why I'm coming to you earlier this week. But for the record, Elon Musk, who was going to buy Twitter for $44 billion last spring and then said he wasn't going to buy it and then got sued by Twitter and was headed to a trial this month, has now decided that he wants to buy Twitter for $44 billion after all. I'm recording this the evening of October 4th, so depending on when you listen to this, things could change because Elon Musk. But at the moment, here's where things stand. Musk has sent Twitter a letter saying, hey, that deal I signed back in April, I'm totally serious about going through it. I just just ignore everything I said and did since I signed it. And then I also need you to stop suing me. And also I need all my investors and lenders to give me the money they promised me back when the economy and the stock market were not in the tank. Cool. And Twitter's response has been, yep, we totally expect you to buy this company for $44 billion, just like the legally binding contract you signed said you would. So maybe there's a deal. There are still wild cards. Twitter and Musk's lawyers need to reach an agreement, one that would convince Twitter that Musk wasn't going to flake again. I'm not really sure how you do that. And they'd also need to get the court to sign off on that. And of course, Musk would then have to carry through on his promise, and he's not always good at that. But you can read all about that on Vox.com and lots of other places. What I wanted to do on this podcast was talk to smart people who know Twitter well. The first one is Jason Goldman. He was the first product boss at Twitter all the way back in 2007. He's one of the only ex-Twitter people who's been talking loudly and publicly about the Musk deal, which I appreciate. And then I talked to Charlie Warzel, the Atlantic writer who's been writing super insightfully about Musk and Twitter all year. They're great interviews. You are going to like them. So let's get to them. Here is Jason Goldman. Jason Goldman was the first vice president of product at Twitter. He went on to become the first chief digital officer at the White House during the Obama administration. Now he's an investor and sadly a podcaster. We can talk about the podcasting part later, but let's talk about Twitter. Jason, it looks like Elon Musk is maybe going to buy Twitter. After all, I'm assuming your phone is blowing up with text messages, DM signals from the diaspora of former Twitter product people and, and Twitter people in general. What's the, is there a consensus mood? Are people happy about this, sad about this? Yeah, I think maybe gonna buy Twitter after all is my least favorite British rom-com title. <laughs> and it, it's like, it's generally kind of, uh, it's, I think it's a bummer. Like most of the people I'm talking to don't want Elon to own the company. Most of the people I've talked to also have expected this outcome. The case was not going well for him. The legal proceedings were not going well for him. He really didn't have a reason uh, legally to get out of buying it. And so it was sort of expected that something like this was going to end up happening. And there's still lots of twists that could happen in which this also falls apart. Um, so just, you know, future proofing. We uh, are caveated up the wazoo on this. <laughs> yeah, one. exactly. No one believes anything's going to happen, but it's a bad outcome because he's, uh, he's shown both publicly and now privately through the text messages that have been produced for the court that he's doesn't have a serious plan for what he wants to do with the product. He doesn't have real product ideas um, for how to evolve the platform. It was just a whim. He didn't even want to own it anymore for very long. And, and that's a bummer for everyone. 
there was sort of a conventional wisdom for a while this summer that he would end up just paying a penalty more than maybe the billion dollar breakup fee. And that would allow Twitter to continue operating with someone who actually wanted to run Twitter. Uh, It's current, current management theoretically. And then he wouldn't be forced to buy it. But I've also heard you say in the past that Twitter is kind of screwed either way that, that by initiating this deal, whether or not he followed through on it, he's putting the company in stasis, he's encouraging good people there to leave. If there's a reality where, where Elon Musk doesn't buy the company or has to pay them a penalty, is that a better outcome? It's probably a better outcome for the product because uh, like his owning it is is almost the worst case scenario for the product and the users. And, and, you know, the company has endured tremendous turmoil in the past and all kinds of self-inflected wounds in the past. This one does stand out as particularly damaging because by accepting the deal and as quickly as they accepted the deal, the board essentially said, we have no better ideas for the future. This captures the best upside that we can see for the future of the company, at least as a stock. And so we might as well go ahead with the transaction. And then on top of it, you've got Jack, the founder and former CEO, saying that it shouldn't even be a company. It should be a protocol and that this was never meant to be a company anymore anyway. And then in the text messages that come out, you see that Jack immediately goes to knife Parag, the current CEO, as soon as Elon pushes back on him. So he's been undermined. The CEO has been undermined in the eyes of the board, in the eyes of the employees, in the eyes of the market. So as an independent company, we're talking about some kind of full reset that would have had to happen. Uh, which isn't impossible, but is incredibly difficult. And that's before you even get into macroeconomic headwinds. You get into the fact that social media is not exactly uh, in the best place that it's been in the last 10 years. So it would have been a very challenging environment for Twitter. One of the things that people on sort of both sides of the pro and anti-Elon debate, that's all I'll reduce it to that, is that Twitter is a badly run company and it's been badly run for years. Um, That's a critique implicitly of you because you were you're one of the founding guys there. Sure. Do you agree with that sort of snap assessment that this is just of a mess of a company and and is a screwed up company that seems to be sort of the all the smart people say, oh, obviously that's the case. The question is what to do with it. So I do. I mean, I do think the company had its fair share, uh, more than its fair share of self-inflicted wounds, you know, infighting, CEO changes, uh, strategic direction changes, all that stuff. And some of which happened when I was there as well. And some of it happened after I left. So I think all of that's fair. I do think now having been on the investor side and advising of other companies side, and also just as the industry has matured and more stories of more messed up companies have come out, you kind of realize that at some scale, you know, founder drama is not exactly unique to Twitter. Uh, and uh, and the idea of people just kind of trying to get into a, a room and figure out the best way forward uh, without having all the facts or great information is kind of the way the world works. Uh, and, and so I, I, I guess I've been a little bit more gentle on some of Twitter's early since since then. But it's it's definitely fair to say that the the company, you know, the company has had more than its fair share of setbacks. One of the the Elon critiques, and you see this with again in the text messages from his his pals and would-be pals, is that Twitter is easy to fix if you'd only do a couple right. things, right? Stop doing content moderation, charge for there's a bunch of easy quick fixes and we could talk about this for hours but as someone who's been there early and has been around it for a while why is twitter a bedeviling product to make better or is it really actually a pretty good product and there's a a a business problem with it instead 
I think the big challenge is that Twitter is actually very good at the thing that it does, which is, you know, it is this portal into the world. You're able to see the world through other people's experience. And that's particularly shines in moment of live events. And, and, and the things that advantaged it was it, it evolved in this era when mobile, the mobile web exploded. It launched just before the iPhone came out that completely changed the dynamics for how Twitter grew and it essentially created this new real estate that Twitter could grow into and really capture the promise of what I was talking about. You know, Twitter started over SMS and before a couple of years, and this was before there was even such a thing as iPhone apps. And then it evolved into being this thing that could be this portal in our pocket into other people's lives. And that's great. The problem was, is that Twitter wasn't the only kid on the block that evolved in that market. Uh, and you had Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and all these other platforms that also took advantage of that real estate boom. And they just ended up with slightly better locations on the block. And Twitter has always suffered in comparison to those other platforms because they just own something a little bit more valuable. And the absolute comparison between Twitter's users and Twitter engagement versus Facebook's engagement or even YouTube's engagement was always going to look bad to the street. And, and therefore, it was always going to be in a bad position as a public company. That's like a big part of what happened. I've always wondered about that and asked people at Twitter directly, sometimes on stage, on the record, if that was sort of the original sin of Twitter, of, of trying, saying, look, there's Facebook and now we're on this trajectory. And so we're going to sort of emulate Facebook, Wall Street, right along with us. We're making product decisions based on that. Would there have been another route for Twitter to have gone? Is there some decision they could have made early on that would have insulated themselves from this? That I guess what we're now calling an unfair comparison, or at least an unflattering comparison between bigger, bigger networks. I think so. I, and like, you know, I don't agree with Jack on a lot of things. One of the things I do agree with that he's talked about is that advertising has been like locking itself into the advertising model has been a big problem for Twitter. Uh, and, and, you know, the, this notion that there could have been different business lines pursued at an earlier time is appealing. And in fact, was a debate we had. I was also on the board of Twitter from its founding until I left. And it was a debate that we had at the board level as well as the product level about doing premium services, like, you know, doing verification vacation as a as a as a business service doing all of these things that in, in essence would create businesses for people who already derive tremendous value out of Twitter as opposed to focusing on the top of the funnel because in a land rush which is where we were once the iPhone was in, in, in introduced there's this desire to just go out and grab as much real estate as possible. And that means getting more users in the top of the funnel. So Twitter's focus for a very, very long time was just getting more users in the top of the funnel. And that meant that there wasn't as much focus building experience that deepened uh, the product for those that already got tremendous value out of it. I, so I think that could have been a part of it from the product side, from the corporate side, you would have had to explain that to the street as like, we're going to be valued differently than these other companies. That's where the rubber hits the road though, because Twitter wanted those multiples that that Facebook had. They, it wanted to be valued as a software business, as an advertising business, because that was the best game in town. So it would have had to, in some ways, clip its own wings from the beginning and say, we're not going to be quite that business. You shouldn't view us in those ways. You shouldn't exactly compare us to those things, because even if we have these other business lines, they're not going to equal as much money as you get from the advertising side. And that is sort of one of the things that Musk and his circle are talking about. It's like there could be a paid product somehow, and it's unclear how that's going to work. If Elon Musk buys the company, everything that's in, in so recording this on Tuesday night, Twitter and, and Musk and their people are all gathered together. They're asked, basically, uh, Musk has said, uh, if, if you guys drop the lawsuit, I'll go forward with it. So we don't know whether that's going to happen and what kind of things 
uh, Twitter would, what kind of assurances Elon Musk could give Twitter and the court that this right. time he means it and he's serious. But let's say he does all that. And then he says, you know what? I thought about it. I shouldn't run the company. Jason Goldman should be the new, should be sure. the CEO of this company. What would you start fixing at Twitter tomorrow if you could? Yeah, I mean, the, the product strategy that I've sort of long advocated is like a, uh, you know, we're going to focus on sets of users that we think actually derive tremendous value from the product today. So like, for example, journalists, we know journalists like live on the product, use it to source stories, spread information about what they're working on. It's become a fundamental part to how journalism works. And there's downsides to that mm -hmm. as well. Uh, which we should talk about and address. But there's been tremendous upside for that as well. But Twitter hasn't really done that much to make that better for journalists. Like, you know, to make it like, so how do you know that something you're sourcing is actually legitimate? And how do you, how, how do you actually just do your job better? I think that's something that you could, you know, sell as a business. That's not going to be a multi-billion dollar business comparable to ads. It's just not like, you know, it's not as though when you're looking around the world, you're saying, where's the deepest pockets? I know, I know mainstream journalism is where there's Thank you for making that money. joke before I did. <laughs> but it is something that would create more value. Another one that's slightly, you know, has slightly deeper pockets is like, you know, media in general, like, you know, celebrities in general, like there's a lot of celebrities who have left the product because they had bad experiences. Like you could do something that improved the product. Now that might also be a costly business to run in terms of human costs. And it again is not going to equal the advertising revenue that you're getting in just by trying to increase inventory, but it would make the platform itself more valuable by helping out those people who are putting the most value into the platform. So I think there's stuff like that that I would look at. Um, but, you know, my fundamental theory with Twitter, and I wrote this this article when I left, is that Twitter essentially is what it is. It's got a certain DNA. And where it's come off the rails is when it's tried too much to, you know, evolve from being, you know, evolve into, into growing wings or to becoming something else that it's not meant to be. Uh, and that's the sort of downfall that I've seen a lot of in, in the last little while. Any words of advice for Elon Musk and whoever ends up running Twitter in the next year? I mean, I think Elon's not going to want to run Twitter for very long. He didn't even want to buy it up until he, you know, got out of having to be deposed and decided it was worth $44 billion to, to avoid being deposed instead. If that theory is true, and by the way, that's the most plausible one at this yeah. moment of recording, that's astonishing. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's exactly that deposition. Mm -hmm. It was just like, this isn't, go. none of this trial is making me look good, right? Like, right. The, the more the more information that comes out, I look worse. And Again, and it's hard to believe worse. he didn't think this through. It, well, when, we've when seen this the starts, text. I know, <laughs> I know. When we, I know, I know, it's, 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 you keep coming back to like, well, no, it's actually what it looked like. But yeah. I always thought, look, you know, it's asymmetrical for him because if he pursues this trial, it seems unlikely he's going to win, but he might get something if he just, if he doesn't pursue the trial, he has to pay $44 billion. Why not just see it through and see if he can extract some sort of concession from Twitter? I think Twitter right. would have been happy to take less than $44 billion at some point. Yeah, I think I, I think that's possible. I think it's also possible Twitter was just like, look, we cast our lot in with this because we thought this was the best possibility and we're getting every penny because we've got there's there's no reason we're going to take less and we know we'll get sued to death 
by taking one penny mm -hmm. less. So we're get, we're going to the walls. And, and it appears, at least as today when we're recording, that that strategy was correct. So if I were advising Elon, I'd be like, dude, you don't actually want to run this. You don't have really good ideas for what to do with it. It's going to be a nightmare for you. This thing exacts its own toll on people who try to go against it. Uh, and you should, you, should, you should move this thing away from you as quickly as possible. One way to do that that's been proposed by others is just, you know, put it into a foundation, treat it as like a public good and like, you know, get, get some sort of organization that's outside of you that's making the calls for how it should grow and evolve. And and and, and that would be a service to the world um, that won't be a moneymaker for you, but it will be something good that you can do uh, for a service that you apparently like to use. If you try to get in there and start making content judgments and product judgments on how you want this thing to evolve, it's going to consume you because it, it, it simply is not going to obey your will. Uh, your ideas are not that well formed, and it's just going to be not just bad for the product, but bad for your life. Um, I think he's going to ignore your advice, but thank you for offering <laughs> it. Let's take a hard a hard turn here. We, as we mentioned, uh, you're an investor. You're, you're out of the product game. You're a professional Twitter analyst, um, but you're also a podcaster. You've got a podcast uh, with yes. a partner called Dune Pod. I've been on it more than once. I yes. like it a lot, but tell us what Dune Pod is and why you're doing it. So Doombot is a podcast that started when uh, Denny Villeneuve's movie Dune was coming out uh, during the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, and it's about, uh, it, you know, Denny's movie is about Frank Herbert's seminal science fiction work from the 1960s, Dune, um, a novel of ecology and uh, space conflict. Uh, and one that has long interested me. And so we made this podcast that was ostensibly about this movie coming out, that we were both fans of the work. But as it's gone on, it's sort of just become a Gen X genre dad movie podcast. And we just cover a lot of movies from the 80s um, that in some way touch on Dune, but a lot of them don't. If you're a man of a certain age, as Eric Bogosian says, this this you, will trip your trigger. And and, and a woman. You, uh, you've got a nice diverse audience. I heard I heard Tony Gilroy on Mark Maron's pod uh, talk about uh, when they were making Michael Clayton, there was this question of who's this movie for? And the quote they came back for was, it's for a man who knows he's going to die. Like, <laughs> that's a, and I think that is also Dune Pod, although not as good as Michael Clayton. Last question about the podcast. I think it's fascinating. And, and like I said, I'm a fan. You've got a Discord that's an interesting community. You yeah. are making a grand total of zero dollars and zero cents from this. Sure. There is no monetization play. I don't believe you're trying to flip this to Amazon. <laughs> yeah. um, as, as midlife crises go... Does starting and running your own not-for-profit money-losing podcast, is that a good choice? Or are you wishing that maybe you got in a divorce or a sports car? Yeah, I mean, all of those are much more expensive. I mean, <laughs> divorce divorce, and Ferrari, both much more expensive. And, and at least the latter one is is worse for the planet. But like, I, you know, obviously not mutually exclusive. It, like the podcast might lead to a divorce in some scenario. Although that is the one that is the one rule we have, which is that we will not do anything that endangers our, our marriages. I think in general, like, look, I've been online my entire adult life. I started off on BBSs in... Uh, St. Louis, Missouri. I like was on IRC. Uh, I was on the early web. I worked on Blogger. You know, I I love the social web and like what what I see with podcasts and the community we built on Discord is like the next evolution of that, where it's a place where people can uh you know hang out. 
and it's low stakes because it's quasi public. You're not out like on blast like you are on Twitter. You're largely talking about pop culture stuff, maybe the news of the day or whatever. And it's just a more fun and safe place than being out doing battle on the Internet, which I still enjoy doing. But most people don't uh, I enjoy watching and, and, a battle on the Internet. Yeah. So, yeah, it's great. No, and, notably, and, and, you were you were one of the few former Twitter people to call out Jack Dorsey during this. Not that I'm. I'm siding with you necessarily, although I am. It's just a, and, uh, it was nice to see some uh, some relative candor going on. A lot of folks were saying stuff privately, but didn't want to say it publicly. Yeah, and and look, like I have an extremely privileged place on the internet because, like, both. First of all, like I don't, I, I'm not trying to get another job in the tech industry, so there's no one that I, if I offend, it's a big problem for my my, my livelihood. Uh, and then second, like. I see what happens to like, you know, like uh, reporters who are women who report on Elon and report on Jack and they just get completely blown up by these fans who are upset with their coverage. No one ever comes for me. Like literally no one ever comes for me. The, the few times that people do, I'll make like some joke about like, you know, I, I've actually worked in this industry. I know these things and they're like then they want to be friends with me. Like it's it's like wild, like how quickly the conversion happens for someone like me versus someone not. So like, it's not really hard for me to take those kind of stances. And there are a large number of people, whether em employees or former employees who simply can't, um, and but who are legitimately irked. Jason Goldman, thank you for your time. I will see you on the internet. I'll listen yes. to you on the internet. I'll probably talk to you on the internet sooner or later. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks again to Jason Goldman. In a minute, we're going to hear from Charlie Warzel, but first, a word from a sponsor. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. Charlie Warzel works for The Atlantic, where he writes lots of smart stuff all the time, including two of the best pieces I've read about Elon Musk and Twitter. Welcome, Charlie. Welcome back. Thank you for having me back. What a time. What a time. The last time we talked, it was April. and Elon Musk was going to buy Twitter, and now it's October, and Elon Musk is going to buy Twitter. Um, <laughs> some things have changed, maybe. When we talked in April, you were pretty down about the prospect of Musk buying Twitter. A lot of people were. But you admittedly didn't know much about what he might do with it if he bought it. Uh, has anything changed since then, which has either changed your mind or strengthened your convictions about the prospects of an Elon Musk-owned Twitter? It's funny, I was going back through some of the old stuff that I wrote and just trying to revisit April this morning or this afternoon, I guess. And I don't think we know all that much more. I mean, we're really kind of are just like right, right back there. And I've been seeing a lot of, this is what I'm thinking about right now. I've been seeing a lot of people who I think, you know, in some senses justifiably are 
back to being very concerned about this, um, mm-hmm. about what might happen to the platform, and especially this idea that it might be thrust into absolute and total chaos. And my feeling is, you know, we're coming off of last week seeing all these messages from Elon Musk's phone. And the sense that I got with that, that's kind of porting us right back to April. A lot of those messages took place right around that time that he was making the offer. I got the sense that he didn't really have an idea Mm -hmm. from those messages, right? I mean, it it was almost that his like text inbox was like a, you know, like a, like a brainstorm session with a whole bunch of really powerful people. And it was like, I'm trying to, you know, get money and also talk to people about it. The sense from the outside, I remember back then, was does he know what he's getting into? Does it, Could you really spend $44 billion on a, on a social media company and not have really thought it through? That can't be right, can it? But then everything we sort of knew about him suggested that maybe that was the case. And like you said, the, the text messages that we were seeing, and, and to, well, we'll talk about what the text messages were, seemed to reinforce that, that there was just a lot of half-assing going on, the same way that you and I might approach what we're going to order at a McDonald's drive-in. Like that much level of thought uh, was going into a forty-four billion dollar purchase. Yeah. Like maybe I'll get the fries, and maybe I won't. Maybe I won't eat anything. <laughs> or if you and I were sitting here talking about like what we'd do if we had forty-four billion dollars and we'd buy Twitter, right? You'd be like, "All right, well, maybe we'll do this." I, I don't know about that. It, it really is kind of uh, like uh, totally half-assed, I think. And and that is sort of what leads me to like you know revisiting what I thought in April. I believe that you know the most likely scenario for Musk owning Twitter is probably that Twitter starts to look, and I said this last time, starts to look a little bit like it did in 2016, right? That there's, he's rolls back some of the, you know, the more, um, some of the trust and safety and like kind of, you know, harassment level protocols that were. He definitely wants to un to replatform some people starting with right. Donald Trump, but other people in his orbit, or he's at least uh, ideologically amenable to, who thinks shouldn't have been kicked off, he wants those people put back on. That seems to be the clearest thing he's he's said both publicly and privately about what he wants to do with this. But I also don't know if he'll... like One thing that I thought was really interesting about the text messages with this is there were a bunch of... Most people were you know, displayed in, in, the, in the phone. There was one that was redacted and it was clearly a person who was like from the you know the right wing ecosystem like talking about Donald Trump describing him as the boss um and then saying like you know we should have some sort of liaison over at Twitter who's like a Blake Masters figure obviously a bunch of people were speculating this was kind of a, an interesting you know Twitter thing to follow a bunch of people were speculating that that was um Peter Thiel but um, some some is, big deal, some some important person in the right wing ecosystem. And I and I have no I have no idea who it is. But this one thread that I was that I was looking at was really interesting. They were showing they were going through who was redacted in the, the list of human beings in the court document that of that you know he had been messaging with, and one of the names that's redacted is like it's sandwiched right where where Stephen Miller would be, where the name Stephen Miller is. Anyway, just an interesting thing. So it's I'm like, gonna do something you shouldn't do on a podcast, which is do more half-assery. I guess that's the part of the po- part of the podcast. But I could have sworn in one of the many Twitter stories I read today, there was one suggesting that that was actually uh, his former wife. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so that that blows everything out. But 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 in, in any case, it's it's 
there's a bunch of people in his head um, that seem to reflect the stuff that he's actually tweeting about. And that's, if that's the closest thing to a plan, then then that's what we've got to look at. Exactly. And I, and I just wanted, I wanted to just say with that, like, I, I sort of think it's not worth it to, to try to read those tea leaves. But I think mm-hmm. what you're saying is right, is, is that like, the sort of <laughs> the recommendations he's getting are coming from lots of different people. And some of them clearly seem to be, you know, extremely ideologically motivated in a, in a rightward way. That's really, I want, I want to come back to what might happen, but I did want to talk about that piece. The most recent piece you wrote, um, it's unlikely that people listening to this podcast haven't read it because everyone seemed to read it and share it over the last few days. They sent it to me directly multiple times. If you haven't read it, go read it. It's called Elon Musk's Text Shatter the Myth of the Tech Genius. And I just want to pull out a quote at the top here, which was great. It's all great. It's all quotable. Quote, what is so illuminating about the Musk messages is just how unimpressive, unimaginative, and sycophantic the powerful men in Musk's contacts appear to be. Whoever said there are no bad ideas in brainstorming never had access to Elon Musk's phone. You wrote that on Friday, last Friday, the day after these texts and DMs became part of the public record from this court uh, court hearing. I was wondering if someone was going to come up with sort of the, the best summary of that, and, and you, you did. Do those texts tell you more about the people who Elon Musk knows and the people who want to work with him, or about the allure Twitter has to some very online people? Is it more about Musk or more about Twitter? I think it does say a lot about about the allure of Twitter, for sure. I mean, there's a lot going on in those messages. I think one is is quite simply... You know, I wanted to kind of stop myself at, at certain points from ascribing like a motive to this. You know, like there's a there's a real desire to say like there's so much ass kissing going on, right? Like, or so much like like um, adulation. You know, these people think so highly of Elon Musk, but just as simply they could be thinking highly of power, right? And being in the right position and saying the nice things so that they. If get you've the ever nod. had to ask like, someone for something, <laughs> and if you're a journalist, for instance, you do that a lot. Could you please do an interview with me? There's there's various levels of of ass kissing going on in kind of any ask. And so I think, you know, it's tough to want to ascribe, you know, the it's impossible to describe an exact motive a a lot of the time. Right. To these people. But so I think there is some some just, you know, wanting proximity to power, wanting to have a good relationship with a powerful person. And then I think there is a lot of this is so important to us, this 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 communication medium that we we need to have one of our guys on it. And I think what's interesting is I actually wrote a piece a couple of days prior to the Musk stuff happening for The Atlantic about this uh, Fifth Circuit social media ruling in Texas about content moderation that's pretty boneheaded um, and you know would have really serious ramifications for you know platforms ability to moderate things like you know terroristic content. Um, child exploitation content, et cetera. It makes social networks as we know them basically unworkable if it actually it, to, were to Yeah, it's, or at least unworkable in Texas or the Fifth Circuit. Some of the people I talked to about that, some of like the First Amendment scholars and, and just tech policy uh, folks, one of the things that, that, that came up was this notion that this is a good example of you know, we always talk about politicians being very, or like, you know, older executives being not internet savvy and not really knowing what's going on. This is a good example of what it looks like when they wake up, I think, right? When they really understand the power of this and some way that you can, you know, sort of describe the tech lash or just like the way that, you know, tech has been in the crosshairs of 
political world since 2016 is this waking up to this the power of these platforms this idea that he or she who controls the you know the the big massive levers of communication in the 21st century has you know outsized power and and i think that you know in these messages you see something not not it's exactly the same but it's of it's of a similar flavor to that right this there's a lot of people who are who are saying you know, like, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but um, the Axel Springer CEO. Matthias Daphner is how I'm going to guess. Uh, the vibe of those text messages to Musk was very much like, it's great. Like, we want you to have, you know. <laughs> it's too important for the leftists to screw up. We need a grown up to come fix it and run because it's an important social good. Exactly. And so I think that there's this, this real idea, like one way you can kind of look at the, both the the right wing and sort of left wing tech lash is a whole bunch of people just wanting to make sure that like their people are the ones minding the store. It's not that they yes. want to censor completely or change or figure out you know who and can't. The who, right people should be running it. Exactly. It's just we want our people looking and monitoring and making sure that you know that X Y or Z isn't possible. And I think that's the kind of the story of you know for a, a lot of people these powerful folks in Musk's text messages. Yeah. That's what they're doing. Another way to view that is, is, and I've heard this from people again on the left or the right, definitely heard on the right when Elon was first going to buy it, was this company is so mismanaged because it's obviously so important. All these important conversations are happening here. Thus, it should be worth a lot more. And to me, I get a little bit of a kick out of that because I'm a guy who spends way too much time on Twitter. But because I spend a lot of time on Twitter, you know that there's actually a lot of stuff that's not important at all. And in fact, a lot of it really should never see the light of day because it's just it's just rotting your brain or worse. And the idea, well, you know, important people have discussions on Twitter. Well, they could find another way to have those discussions, too. I would like for Twitter to continue. But I do think there's an overvaluation uh, of Twitter that you see both in the conversations we're having, but in those text messages at all. One one thing I did see on Twitter primarily um, in response to your article was people who are generally in the business of investing in tech companies going, hey, why are you making fun of people wanting to throw money at Elon Musk? Because that was one of the striking things was, you know, various people saying, do you want 250 million, a billion, two billion? Well, I'll just throw it in. I don't, I don't need it to see. No it extra practice. work required. And there are a bunch of people saying, um, the idea of investing is you give someone money and then they give you more back. And Elon Musk, whatever you want to say about him, is good at making money or has been good at making money. So why are you dunking on him for that? Did, did any of that criticism come back to you and make you consider any of that? I mean, I think I think with you know one one it wasn't necessarily like a direct criticism, but um, in his newsletter uh, on Monday, Matt Levine uh, sort of. Echoed that one, yeah. Some of these, some of these messages, and one of the things that he brought up in it was was um, you know someone I quoted in the uh, in a, a source of mine in my piece w was talking about how like this was just embarrassing, right? This is a lot of people like, is this how business gets done now? Is this like these looks like a bunch of you know kids essentially you know in a fantasy baseball draft or something? And what he said in response to that that I thought was you know a good point was like, how do you expect people to conduct like themselves over text message right like of course a lot of people are going to look like you know morons or mm -hmm. sycophants or it's going to be hilarious the way that musk shuts them down by you know not responding to them or just you know hitting the thumbs up tap back response and that's it because it's 
text messaging, right? And that it's it's not the totality of the conversations, et cetera. So I think that that's a point that like, I take that point. I also, I think given the mythology around a lot of tech founders and CEOs, like I do think we can expect better of the people who want to have their hands on the reins of the, you know, the communication rails of the 21st century. Like I, I think, I think that's a fine thing to set high expectations in, in regard to, you know, the throwing money at him. I, I think I included a line in the piece that's like, I do get that it is Elon Musk. Like I understand it makes more sense, the, the blank check there, but I also think it speaks a little bit to and this is why I included this, like, aside from last April from um, Sam Bankman-Fried, or however you say his name, I'm bad at pronounce- pronouncing, um, about how, like, a lot of, from his perspective as a crypto billionaire, a lot of the both crypto and tech VC stuff is, like, very vibes-based or, like, grievance-based mm-hmm. or just kind of, like, our LPs are, like, you know, miss, feel like they're missing out on something because their friends are all talking about something and then you just throw a lot of money at it. I mean, it seems like that's that's like a real critique of the way that, you know, investing is happening in these industries. And I think like- Is it, like is it a critique or just an that ass- out, right? Is that a critique <laughs> or an assessment? Yeah, and Sam Blackman-Fried is, is this fascinating character that I would love to read more about because he's a crypto billionaire who, as far as I can tell, remains a billionaire. Um, his clearly interest in media. He keeps floating the idea that he would buy various things, including Twitter. Um, and there's a, a f- series of photos I keep returning to of of him on stage with Tony Blair and Bill Clinton at a conference he's sponsoring in the Bahamas. And uh, the two former heads of states are dressed like former heads of states, and he's in shorts. And I think, yeah, this is like a being there fantasy of what you would do if someone dumped a bunch of money on top of you um, out of nowhere. Anyway, that's a long aside. And he's in the he's in the Musk text messages, right? Being yeah, yeah. introduced, and and you know, Musk is like, "Is this guy for real?" interesting player but i think it all speaks to like there's a lot of legitimate questions to be asking about how venture money is spread around and and what the what the point is out of some of this stuff and and i think the texts speak to that to some degree i get it i get people throwing money at elon musk right like even if just for the fact of let's throw some money at elon musk maybe we lose it but it doesn't matter because we have a ton of it and like we were there for Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, mm-hmm. during a moment when he, you know, wanted some financial support. Maybe that's just a, you know, that, that's kind of, I feel like, the way that some of that business gets done. So who am I to say? Again, we don't know if Elon Musk is really going to buy Twitter. We don't know what would happen if he buys Twitter to the product. But let's keep speculating. When the deal was first announced, you saw lots of people on Twitter saying, well, I'm going to I'm going to leave the service. Um, I'm going to bail on this. And it's the typical and correct reaction to anyone announcing they're going to leave a service or a country on the internet if something happens is to ignore it, Um, because generally it doesn't happen. I'm wondering, though, for a service like Twitter where it's power users, it's core users are so engaged that, that you might actually see some of them really look for something else rather than work on Elon Musk Twitter. Do you think that's plausible? I guess I I don't see it necessarily happening unless the service gets really bad. I mean, I think that there's a real risk. I think we might have talked about this some last time, but there's a, I think there's a a giant risk if he does roll back a lot of protections that, you know, stop people the the worst people from just sort of, you know, flooding this with so much 
toxic speech that all the people who are interesting, you know, feel like it's a hostile environment and they leave. That's very real, right? Like, I mean, if Twitter becomes an absolute cesspool, like I, I know myself and a lot of people, you know, it might just not be worth it anymore, right? And and then you do, that's when you have to, you know, that's how change kind of always happens, right? There's some big change with, with a platform or a forum or something. Either people get banned or there's overly permissive rules and people just say like, or, or I'm it just at, or, or it atrophies over time, right? People just grow out of them or grow tired of them. And, you know, there are a lot of people who after 2016 announced that, you know, they didn't want to support Facebook because it had elected Trump, which is not true. But, but I think the bigger reason is that people like my kids would never dream of going on Facebook or even Instagram for that matter. It's, it's where old people are. There's obviously a version of that happening that could happen to Twitter, regardless of who owns it. Well, it's it's so similar too to what we were just saying about this idea of like billionaires and media moguls and people who are terminally addicted to Twitter overvaluing what Twitter is, right? It's like because it's it's so central and important to them and their certain age group or their status. You know, I, I, I when I talk to people who are kind of looking at the broader media ecology, right? I mean, it, it's very clear that like Twitter's importance in the in this sphere you know it, it has an expiration date you know i i think like if you if you look at the way that you know people are talking about politics on tiktok right like twitter is sometimes like the the content grist for like the tiktok mm-hmm. mill but like there's plenty of stuff going on there and and i think that twitter became so important like it was always you know part of sort of politics from you know probably 2011 onward right but it was it became so so yoked to it because of Donald Trump and because of the fact that it was his chosen medium but like you can also imagine other politicians or other people coming up using a different platform in a different way that makes it that important right like that's where the that's where the news is is breaking that's where the you know the things happen i just don't think like we can ever one of the f- interesting things about this is we we should never no one should ever assume you know that a social network's popularity is is you know going to stay consistent like th- there's not that's just not how it works and the facebook example is a great one right like i heard someone describe it today as like a a niche uh like minions fan website for boomers <laughs> right like it's like that's that's a that's that's how that's what people are thinking about it. You know? Increasing my Twitter use case is where I go after I see something on TikTok that I can't understand. And I'm hoping that someone has written about it in text form. Um, so that's where I head. Yeah. And, and I think like as text based media starts to become, you know, a little less important uh, to to, you know, our broader media ecosystem, then you're like Twitter is is yoked to text almost, you know, yeah, it tried there. it tried to do pictures, it tried to do video, it didn't work out the way that the, the company thought it would work out. Charlie, last prediction. When you and I talk next, will Elon Musk own Twitter? The trick is we don't know when he's gonna we don't know when we're gonna talk next. But assuming that we're on our sort of six month cadence here. There's a, an interesting like I don't know. Like we'll know more tomorrow. You know, like this is a tough time to make that prediction because I think Twitter gets to respond is like taking the night to think about it. Uh, I don't know. I, I There was something I was thinking, I was musing about on Twitter today that there was like, you know, everyone wants to 
every journalist wants to come up with like a, a law of the internet, right? Or something like that. But like, I think like if if you were to do a Musk's law, it's that like the story's never over if there's more attention to be, you know, drained out of it. And I still think like we have like one or two more twists left in this story in some way. I do like that like shortly before he sent a letter to to Twitter saying, I'm going to buy this thing after all, he was spending his time on Twitter um, sending out incendiary uh, messages about Russia and Ukraine. Right. Um, it's like, I love this. I love this platform. I must own it. It's, this is, I mean, where else could I, could I make an ass of myself uh, in, in, in geopolitical terms? And again, that's a great example of a power user and an addicted to the platform personality overvaluing or over-indexing the importance of this thing, right? You got extremely, extremely, you know, owned on Twitter for, for 24 hours and felt the power of the platform, right? Knew he had to have it for himself. Um, I, I don't know. But I, I think I think we should never assume that this story is over. Charlie <laughs> Warzel from The Atlantic. Great to talk to you. I'll see you in some number of months. All right. Good luck. Thanks again to Charlie. Thanks again to Jason Goldman. Thanks again to Jelani, who busted his butt to turn this thing around so you could have fresh podcast in your ear right after news broke. Thanks to our sponsors who bring this podcast to you for free for zero dollars. We love our sponsors and we love you guys. Um, thanks for writing. Thanks for tweeting. We will see you next week. <laughs>